the Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show. Well, hello, everybody. It's uh, Wine Women Radio Hour. I'm Marcia Maycumber. And I'm Lisa Adams-Walter. And Misty Rodebush-Kane, unfortunately, couldn't be with us. She's uh, she's on assignment for the moment, um, but we're missing her, particularly because of the location we're at. Are we, like, in the coolest place? Coolest. Coolest ever. It's, Elegant, it's, historic, oh beautiful. Tell them right. where we are, Marcia. We're, we're at the Palace Hotel in San Francisco, and it's just absolutely breathtaking here. You walk in and you see the garden court right away with those the, the enormous, beautiful um, stained glass ceiling that's yeah. just so stunning and all of it is great. And we're here because today is the first day of the Zinfandel Advocates and Producers Conference, also known as ZAP, mm-hmm. um, to everybody in the industry and the locals and fans of Zinfandel. ZAP is the annual big thing to do and this morning um they had a uh, seminar um for with panelists who are all viticulturists vineyard managers um and looking at the future of how zinfandel is going to grow as as climate change you know uh, evolves uh, which it seems to be doing faster and faster all the time uh and so we're here to kind of talk with these panelists as well to get their take on uh, the whole scene and the zap event and uh Zinfandel is in a whole, and of course, um, the wineries and the wines that they uh, produce from the grapes that they grow. So Yeah, and Zinfandel from all over, not from one region. So we have right. guests representing many regions, which right. will be really exciting and interesting. Yeah, so from as far away as uh, Paso Robles and uh, Lodi, uh, as well as uh, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, Napa, Sonoma, Santa Cruz, um, Santa Clara, um, so all those kind of areas, which is cool. And our first guest today, um, we're very excited to have Brene Royal. Welcome, Brene. Thank you, ladies. It's really <laughs> terrific. We I, we've actually been wanting to get you on the show for a long time, oh, but it yeah. just turned out that um, it worked out when uh, Joel Peterson said to us, "Well, I'm having Brene on the panel," and we're like, "Oh, great! You know, it'll work out. We can we can talk with you." So thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So for listeners who don't mm-hmm. know, Brene is the vineyard manager at Monteroso Vineyards in Sonoma and this is a one of the most historic, one of the most vaunted, and it's a big mother from the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> and you should know, um, Brene is fr- fairly young to this industry and just, you know, her role in this. You've been at Monte Rosa now four or five years? So this is my sixth season as the vineyard manager, but I'm coming up on seven years oh, of wow. being at Monte Rosa. Exciting. Yeah. So Brene's background started, obviously, um, back in college, Cal State Chico, where she got a BS in agriculture and agricultural operations, right? So crops and horticulture science. Okay. All right. Yep. Things that are complicated for me that involve <laughs> growing things in a much fancier way than a little garden in the backyard, which is pretty much the extent of my knowledge. So um, very cool to learn that. She also has her certification as a pest control advisor, and that certification comes from the California Department of Pesticide Regulation. Now, it's not a sexy thing, but when you are trying to grow crops for consumption um, with as little intervention as possible, learning how to manage the pests that are brought to us by nature, thank you, 
is a really important thing. And I hope we get to talk a little bit about what got you so interested in pursuing your certification for uh, uh, pest regulation. But um, tell us a little bit what, what the seminar was like this morning. Did you have fun doing the seminar and the panel discussion? I had a lot of fun. Um, I actually get to see a lot of those gentlemen on a, a fairly regular basis. Uh, Jake Newstadt and I are neighbors. That's right. <laughs> oh, we wow. are. He'll, be, he'll be with us shortly. Yeah. Um, and then Dave Gates and I mm-hmm. are always at different seminars together, but it was great to meet the other gentlemen, but it was a lot of fun. I love geeking out on Monteroso. Um, so hand me a mic and tell me or ask me anything about Monteroso and I just sit back and enjoy your popcorn <laughs> i could probably well, go on good. forever keep going so so for our listeners who may not know monteroso okay you know red mountain red clay but more importantly let's back up it's got a really fascinating history and why don't you tell high, our listeners high about elevation that? yes you know yeah i'll um give you guys the 9,000 foot speech because <laughs> we're already about 1300 feet up but um Monterosa was established back in 1886 by Emanuel Goldstein and his business partner, Samuel Dreyfus. They were grocers in San Francisco and decided to start making their own wine. So they actually went out to Sonoma Valley in the 1880s and started cultivating what would become 75 acres of Monterosso. Um, so v- first vines went in the ground in 1886, um, but not too long after it, Phylloxera wiped out most of the vineyard, um, although we do still have some vines that remain standing, and those are predominantly semion. So we, we do have some 134-year-old semion out wow. there. But majority of the vineyard was reestablished back in er, 1893. Mm-hmm. So. Okay. Uh, the 75 acres are back up. Samuel Dreyfus is bought out, and the vineyard is known at the time as Goldstein Ranch. Mm-hmm. Um, prohibition begins. By this time, Emanuel has passed on, and the family is looking to start getting back into San Francisco and out of the, the vineyard industry. So mm-hmm. they put the vineyard up for sale, and in 1938, Louis and Martini purchased the vineyard, and in 1940 started planting Cabernet Sauvignon, and that block we're still farming today. It is cool. 80 years old, but they grew, it was the Martini family that grew the vineyard from 75 acres up to present day 250 planted to grapevine. Um, but same kind of situation, the Martini family wanted to take a step back from all of their entities, and in July of 2002, they sold both Louis and Martini Winery and Monteroso to the Gallo family. Um, so the Gallo family is the current owner. Um, we have maintained the 250 acres of planted grapevine, but the vineyard is 575 acres total. Mm-hmm. Um, we are southwest facing, so on a clear day you can see the Golden Gate Bridge, um, but Carl the Fog is a situation <laughs> most of the time. Um, and and, and you, that would put you above the fog a lot of the time, right? Yeah, so it's, it's nice. We have an elevation range from 690 feet up to 1,300 feet, so more times than not, it's super clear for us, and it looks like we're sitting on the clouds which is pretty cool um we don't always get that luxury but and because we're so high up we don't frost protect but we still have little microclimates and and cold pockets i did get snow this time last year oh my goodness which was a situation (laughs) and today it's it's practically 70 degrees here in san francisco and it's relatively warm in sonoma as well yeah we got up to 73 yesterday um so uh, lots of history it is planted on um in a red hill clay loam so if you can think of a a baseball field or a baseball Mm -hmm. kind of infield that red soil or the red dirt that's very and it's packed super tight Mm -hmm. 
And my recollection is that that type of a surface is the kind where the water just runs right off. So the drainage is crucial for management, I would I would think. So the clay loam is actually like perfect and the drainage in the soil is fantastic, especially being on a mountaintop. So whenever we get extreme rain, you know, anywhere from three to five inches in a day, I still don't have um, standing water. Nice. Um, We've got a nice shell layer that sits fairly deep into the soil and then there's bedrock in there as well. So drainage in the soil is actually critical to why some of our 127, 130 year old vines are able to continue growing because those root zones have access Mm -hmm. to nutrients and water that have been leaching through the soil for literally decades and i believe that adds to the complexity of the wine and and why you know they're still living and able to produce such high quality wines can you um for our listeners describe (coughs) where this vineyard is and we we kind of know because we're from I lived in Sonoma. It's, up, Marcia it's, uphill, does from in a, it's Sonoma. uphill from a client's <laughs> it's, vineyard, but it's, it's on Moon top. Mountain. Yeah, yeah. 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 So mountain. for people, if someone's listening from far away, like where would you, how would you describe the location? So it's just north of the town of Sonoma, and mm-hmm. we're in the bench of the Mayacamas mountain range. So we're located in the Sonoma um, AVA, but there's the sub-AVA Moon Mountain District, and Monterosa is smack dab in the middle of it. Okay. Right. Nice. Particularly because it's at that higher elevation, yeah. mm-hmm. the the borderline of Moon Mountain District is a little lower in elevation. So, yeah, you know, it's it's the the envy of all vintners out there. Is this is prime land? So now we need ha- to talk a little bit, Brene, about how you stumbled into <laughs> managing this this big vineyard. I know that you have people on your staff that have been there for upwards of 30 years 39 years oh my goodness yeah. who, uh, who've worked it so they mm-hmm. so you have the advantage of people who really know how these vines have changed over the years what what was it like for you coming into that fresh so I, I have to be totally honest here it's it's been kind of this recent thing where people are like I want your job you have the best job and I was like what are you like please don't <laughs> Like, please don't look at my social media. Like, that is not real life. I do not look like that on a day-to-day, which is why I have to document the days I do look presentable. But um, I I know as an intern in 2013, um, it was my third day on the job that I was introduced to Monterosso. There were 1,800 acres spread across about seven properties, and I was working across all of them as a a vineyard operations intern. And so my third day on the job at Monterosso, I was like, okay, this one is the one I just really don't like. (laughs) I mean, did you use the never word? Because, you know, the never word is one that always means, nope, you're going to get thrown into this for a life period. (laughs) When I was asked to apply for the job, I I thought back to when I was like, oh my God, I never want to work here. So I I did use the never word a number of times and now (laughs) I've gotten smart, but it's, I mean, I might still keep using it because it's, it's a vineyard that I never knew I needed. And it's like this bucket list item that I didn't know was there, but I know as an intern, I mean, literally the most superficial reasons it's hot. There's no cell reception. There are rattlesnakes everywhere. (laughs) 
you're logistically very, very far from everybody else. Um, and just the prestige that comes with that vineyard, you've got all eyes on you. So everything that you do, people know about. So things going well, great. Things going like unwell, great. <laughs> like everybody knows. And so, and, and then just, I mean, the wines that are coming off of it, it's everybody has a very high... Uh, expectation of that vineyard and so as an intern it was daunting and then certainly coming back full-time in that same area and now overseeing the technical side and and all the data management of Monterosa was no easy feat and then you know a, just under a year to come on as the manager like you are in charge it was like what is happening <laughs> um and, and, and you know I I have to believe in myself a little bit more because the Gallo family did and they saw something in me that you know said I was qualified to run their crown jewel vineyard okay so, so. what do you so what do you think that is and I, and I just have to interject women collectively generally underestimate their ability just this is just a very broad statement but we've all heard this from various research studies that women have a tendency to underestimate their skill levels and men have a tendency to overestimate right. them sometimes there's no in between that's no judgment <laughs> that's no judgment but but you were mentioning how, thing. how the gallo people you know saw something in you and i've heard from your interview at the on the winemakers podcast and we'll provide a link to that because it's an excellent interview as well and it's much longer than we're going to have time for today too um you have certain skills that I that you mentioned that I thought were really key. What do you what do you think are your strong skills to help you with this vineyard? Organization. Um, there are no signs on any of the blocks, and we have sixty four blocks, but then we sub block those and divide those into different blocks dependent on terrain, topography, aspect, all these different things. Um, so we can be managing anywhere from you know 100 to 510 different sections for different wine styles and we'll actually take that all the way through not just the farming but the harvest as well so you need to know where you're at and you also need to know what's happening at all times um now what do you what are your tools for that are you an excel girl i only mention that because i know other vineyard managers and they bring up their spreadsheets in my eyes bulge and I, I recently upgraded from being a dinosaur and having to write everything down i really like i feel like when you write things down you like remember it spreadsheets yes, my true. eyes glaze over and i got into farming to not be on a computer <laughs> good for you so, um but i so i've always been kind of like I, I feel like most farmers you need to be planned in advance if you approach things day to day you will be automatically behind so um I generally like to plan two weeks out. So every Monday I'll meet with the team and we'll go through everything. And, and with the experience that you kind of touched on um, with my team, they've seen a myriad of stuff that I have not yet seen. They've been doing their job longer than I've been alive. So I think that's critical in my success and certainly the Vineyard's longevity. So whenever I'm planning, I'm like, okay, have you guys seen this before? Does this make sense? Here's what I see coming up. Is there anything I missed? And just really including them and collaborating with them in how we're going to move forward in a certain part of the season. Certainly now when I can't be on site and I get to be dressed up at the Palace Hotel, <laughs> there's still things going on on the ranch. And so not only are we planning things out, but we're making sure everybody knows who's doing what, what job is moving forward, who to call in the event of an emergency. Um, you know, if I am 
if I'm near a store or anything, they can reach out to me and, and tell me, hey, like, can you pick this up? We're running low on this. So it's really this collaborative effort by everybody on the team. And I learned out. Well, I think this is kind of ingrained also being a woman is empathy. So, um, you know, I, I've never approached my team as I'm the boss. I'm up here and everybody's down here. I always try to show some kind of um, I'm, miss, I'm blanking on the word I'm looking for, but if I can go out there and work with them, I will because it's we're all the team out right. there. I I hold the the manager title, but honestly, I believe a vineyard and the wines are only as successful as the team of people doing it. And it is the vineyard team that are touching those vines 10 to 15 times each year. So I want them to feel just as ingrained and as a part of making the decisions as, as best I can. I mean, at the end of the day, I'll, I'll have the final say and there are things I can't compromise on, but that has led to my success and, and cool. why I'm still there. So as a follow-up to that, I'm curious to know, given Monterosa's age, um, being, you know, over 100 years old, uh, not all of the vines, but some of them, you mentioned the Semillon is older and the, the Cabernet Sauvignon is go- going into its eighth decade shortly, I believe. Mm-hmm. Uh, what happens since you, you are newer coming out of Cal State Chico, and then you've got, the, you've got your staff and crew who've been there for 30, and you said now 39 years mm-hmm. for at least one person on the crew, have you found resistance to say some new farming techniques, changes in technologies? Oh, she's laughing. <laughs> that, you know, what, what's it like? You know, are you running into friction and, and you know, is a story come to mind that you want to share with listeners about <laughs> yeah. working with that kind of tricky stuff? So I became the vineyard manager in 2015 and I believe I'm the first woman to manage that property. And Generally, it's a Hispanic um, kind of culture that mm-hmm. predominantly work in vineyards and men. <laughs> and if That's you know right. anything about that, like they do not generally take direction from women. And I came in as this hot and ready 25 year old, uh, you know, just ready to change the game while also being incredibly insecure about like what I'm going to do next. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I spent the first year and a half just working on gaining the crew's respect because I figured if I could earn their respect, then they'll respect me in return. And so it was a lot of me getting lectured on different things that they didn't like, um, <laughs> whether that be in the vineyard or, or, or my management style. Um, paid a lot of over, <laughs> overtime in 2015, <laughs> but um, just l- hearing them out and listening. Um, do, you and th- do you think you've now the years have passed? Oh and my gosh! The, yeah. You know, oh, you're they, simpatico now. The guys, I, the guys are my family. Like I, I love my vineyard team, but it was certainly this. And th- we we joke about it now over our barbecues, but like they put me through the test because they know how hard it is to manage that property. Um, they have a lot of uh, passion for the ranch, a lot of dedication in the ranch, and they don't want, you know, some new kid on the block coming in and, you know, thinking mm-hmm. that they're going to just change and do all this stuff. The technology piece, they've been a lot more receptive to in the last couple of years. It hasn't been the easiest, um, but I've gained enough, like, kind of repertoire with them where I can explain stuff and they'll give it a shot because they've seen in the past that they can have faith in, in my decision making and some of my goals. And so I don't get 
nearly as much resistance as I did back in 2015. Like, there are some hard days, but I think that kind of comes with the territory. True. And it's very outdoorsy, so. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Some, some days are going to be easier than others very with the request. Very rural. So I was going to ask you, um, Brene, I saw Esther Mobley wrote about you in the San Francisco yeah. Chronicle, really lovely story earlier this year. Are you still a 20-something? Are you on the brink? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on You're the 29 brink. 29 again? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm on the brink. I will be turning 30 at the end of March. Oh, Exciting. Good for you. Yeah. Because she had mentioned that you were the youngest ever vineyard manager so of that property. So right. not only are you the first <laughs> woman, but you're the youngest person ever. Um, and also, I hope it's okay that I mention this, I believe you reside at that location, I right? Do. So yeah. can you tell us about that? How is that living and working? And Depends on the year. Um, <laughs> I know in 2016, like that was like the worst year to not be able to like leave work. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Weather related? Or I what? mean, that was just a tough season. So walking outside and seeing stuff you wish was done and you can't have done for another week or so, like... 2016 was just rough and anybody who experienced that vin that vintage in the vineyard will sympathize with that statement um but i i love living on the vineyard um i get that place to myself 50 <laughs> percent pretty of phenomenal and so i always i kind of have to pinch myself and in fact i there was a vendor a new vendor who came out in like 2017 or something and we were standing in the yard and he was like oh wow like these are your views and he's kind of just standing there awestruck and i was yeah. like yeah i volunteer as tribute like oh, somebody's <laughs> got to do it and he just looked at me and he was like you know people pay thousands of dollars to spend a weekend and you live here and i was like oh my god thank you i'm so sorry i'm being <laughs> so pretentious right now <laughs> but it, it's amazing i'm i'm the resident mountain troll with um, my black lab and my cat so <laughs> wow well that's great and the animals have the run of the vineyard yes mm. are they both outdoors or is Kitty no more they're indoors? both indoors okay. there are a lot of wildlife i was gonna like say to you hang out I was going to say, you must have some pumas that yeah. uh, wander through nice. and you don't the want yours. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we, I've had uh, mountain lion cubs hanging out on the porch. I've spooked a mountain lion. So, yeah, my, my fur kids are indoors. I so. could imagine <laughs> that so. Sounds like, is, it just sounds like fun, you I, know, to I be out there. I have a quick question as a, a local. Is the, is the Moon Mountain Tree Farm still there and operational? Did they reopen ever? Or? They are closed permanently. Are they really? Okay. Mm -hmm. I thought that was so sad after the fire. Was, yeah. So you were, were, really you were up recovered. there during fires, right? That must <laughs> have been a scary time. <laughs> yeah, don't call me in a crisis um, because I went into an extreme state of denial in during the fires I, I i was we sit high enough to watch them so we were able to kind of see the progress and of course we were keeping up to date but um yeah i the night the fires broke out we were harvesting and it immediately kind of shut down um operation and got everybody home since highway 12 is like the worst street on any given day fire oh, or yeah. not um but just getting in my mind like this was real and that was my first natural disaster and so um it was rough um luckily and for us we didn't suffer too much my team came back mm -hmm. um 
and and the vineyard is standing and and we had some infrastructure damage and some tree damage because the fire did make it onto the property but I remember I was the first one back after nine days of being evacuated and I thought it was going to be an incredibly emotional experience and I was mostly driving around with my jaw dropped just seeing how the fire like moved and and why it burned here why it didn't burn there where they were bulldozing and things like that and it was just a surreal experience um but my team came back and and um some of the family members came back and they just said you know do what you need to do to get morale back and support your neighbors and that was huge for me so yeah the fires were gnarly it's crazy well, before we have to go, because we will soon, since we are here for a Zap experience, a Zinfandel experience, let's talk a little bit about growing Zinfandel at Monte Rosa. Uh, it likes warm, but not too warm. Uh, you know, there, it, it's such an, it, a Goldilocksy kind of grape. Yeah, I, I, I just ran into somebody who attended the Zap Flights event that we just did, and I told him Zinfandel was my problem child. And he's like, what, why? And I was like, why not? And I, he's like, it's not like Pinot Noir Chardonnay. And I was like, no, it's like that. It's like that. Like you're like that itch you can't get out. Like Zinfandel responds to like everything. So if it's too hot, you've got shriveling and dehydration and and just the worst. And all this like it's especially at um, right before harvest, like 2017. So and then if it's cold, you've got situations. And then if you've got a lot of water. So like Zinfandel <laughs> just does whatever it wants. And at Monteroso, um, we've got it on a couple different trellis systems, but particularly in the head train Zinfandel, we've got um, that from 800 feet elevation up to 1300 feet elevation. So as I go back to kind of the complexity in those microclimates, there are spots that get incredibly cold. And when Zinfandel starts sizing up and then bursting, you can have some botrytis. You can have all types of things. We've got high mildew pressure up there. Those old vines like to hang on to that and winterize. But growing Zinfandel keeps you on your toes, I would say, um, especially in those gnarly vines. You've got so much variability within the structure of the vine. That just adds the, to the variability that you're going to get in the fruit. And so you're constantly reevaluating what you've got to do. Even as I was kind of talking through people with how you're making a decision to prune vines, you're doing that with every job <laughs> just because, you know, whether it be fruit set or a lot of water in the ground or um, a lot of canopy, like you've got to tweak what you do. It's, it's not just no uniformity in the vineyards. There's no uniformity from year to year. So <sighs> I've got, 80, <laughs> got 85 acres of Zen and yeah, and it sounds like a lot of challenges. Um, how many <laughs> different, how many different winemakers get the Zinfandel grapes from Monterosso? Is it, is it more than that? I know you have like about a half a dozen under the Gallo, uh, umbrella, but, but you also have several who are not, who, who are not under Gallo who receive grapes from Monterosso. So within Gallo, it's, um, three different teams and then outside in 2019 it was four okay different winemakers and have you have you gotten to sample all mm -hmm. of the different ones and mm -hmm. do, do you find that the winemaking style from the grapes is a complete gamut 
you know, or, or, something, do you, or is do you there find a common a thread? Yeah. Right? Is there a common thread through? There's all of definitely them? a common thread. Something that I really appreciate with all of the winemakers that make Zinfandel from Monterosso is while there's that common thread, each of their different wine styles decides to like express one thing greater than the other. So. Mm-hmm. We're not tasting, you know, seven to ten mm-hmm. of the same Zinfandel. There's a different expression out of each of them that I really love. And you can still say, like, tasting any of those wines blind, that's Monoroso because of that common thread of acidity and tannins and just structure to the wine. So I, that's something that I've enjoyed and something that I learned even working at Monoroso is we tend to harvest blocks anywhere from one to six times and Mm -hmm. I didn't have an appreciation for that until I went to do some of our bigger blend tastings and it was like oh like there is a rhyme and a reason as to why we're going to harvest a top hilltop versus a swell or slope and things like that and so um, that's why we now farm to that because there truly is a difference. So let's make sure listeners know before we have to go um, you know what some of these wines are you're wearing your Louis Martini jacket right now. (laughs) So Louis Martini specializes in a lot of um, single vineyard designate Zinfandels, um, some of which are from Monterosso. Monterosso. Um, but what are some of the other Zinfandels that come from Monterosso that you want to mention? So Mount Peak Rattlesnake, okay. that one's a, a really fun one. Um, and then that is it for. Oh wait, well there's Eight Years in the Desert by Oren Swift. So right. There's yes. Quite a bit of Monterosso Zinfandel in there. And that would be it for Gallo products right. and right. That's Well, that's 85 acres worth. There you so go. So, yeah, Louis and Martini, Gnarly Vine. There that's you, it. Very good. And, <laughs> folks, those are those are all Googleable names. Yes. So you can <laughs> find Louis Martini really easily. You can find the Orange Swift um, eight, mi- eight miles in the eight. Eight years in eight the years desert. Eight years in the desert. I, just, I was just looking at something on that yesterday, but I couldn't remember the whole name. So um, lots the Lu- of choices there. And, and the, the Louis Martini Visitor Center is just recently been completely redone it was restored yeah Yeah. so do you have any comment about that i mean come and visit so (laughs) um at lewis and martini there's this wonderful heritage lounge so if you enjoyed the the martini gnarly vine you can also taste the other five varieties that we have specifically from monterosa there's a malbec cab franc cabernet sauvignon and a mountain red red blend they're oh, all really cool. fun. And then you can just have the full experience of some of our other vineyard designates as well. Nice. Cool. Really well, nice. Brene Royal, vineyard manager from yes. the famed Monterosso <laughs> Vineyard in Sonoma County, in Sonoma Valley, specifically within the Moon Mountain District sub-AVA. Uh, thank you so much for yeah, uh, being with us it's on really Wine Women Radio. We really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you so much. All right. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. We've got Brennan Stover here, who's the vineyard manager at Turley Wine Cellars, uh, to join us. Uh, Brennan, thank you so much for being with us today. We really appreciate yeah, thank it. Thank you. Thank you for you guys having me here. This it's, is awesome. It's been great. Now, you, you were sitting on the panel this morning, the panel discussion on viticulture and uh, so forth, and you've been, do- you've been doing this a little while, understatement, understatement. Um, Because you've been involved with Turley and in the uh, Paso Robles uh, vineyards since, oh, 2001 or so? Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So you've really seen the changes. Totally. Paso's boomed. (laughs) (laughs) It it is growing. It's alive and well. And, yeah, I've been there almost 20 years now. Nice, nice. So tell our listeners a little bit. 
How did you get into vineyard management? Okay, well, we don't have a lot of time, but I'll go. <laughs> yeah, the short, the short version is the one we're looking for. <laughs> okay, so I grew up in Kansas, and um, I went to K-State. I studied psychology and anthropology. Mm-hmm. It was in the last year of my college education that I took a trip down to Mexico, stumbled upon a vineyard, said, that's right on, that's what I need to do. Came back home, talked to my dad, absolutely frightened about that. <laughs> was your dad a farmer, though? He was not. Oh, wow. <laughs> but was he kind of like Kansas, winemaking? He d- did he not get it? No, you know what? <laughs> the, no, the beautiful thing about that was he was like, seriously, you want to do that? Didn't do it. Oh. Dang, that's great, Brandon, that you had awesome such dad. a supported, supportive dad. Yeah. yeah, he was cool like that. And so um, last year in college at K-State, I set up a horticulture department with K-State and a winery in Kansas. You founded it? <laughs> you founded the horticulture department like at K-State? I I set up an internship <laughs> okay. with the horticulture. Oh, internship. Oh, yeah, okay, I got did it. not found. No. Okay. It's like, what? No, no okay. I did not find. No. But I set up um, an internship with that, uh, with K-State and this winery in Kansas. And, um, yeah, started making wine in Kansas. And it was like crazy pioneering. We um, <laughs> We worked with French hybrids, Native American grapes. We made terrible wine. <laughs> <laughs> it was very pioneering. I had to do everything from like vineyard management to winemaking to all the lab work and dragon sales, hoses, <laughs> dragon hoses, everything. And um, we made such terrible wine that I was constantly calling up. At that time, there was this place called Napa Wine Lab, mm-hmm. and they. Um, yeah, we would have all kinds of crazy problems with the wines. I'm like, okay, what do you do with this? And what do you do with that? And so it was like very pioneering. Is, is it ex- because the the, um, the climate is so very <laughs> different in Kansas than California? Exactly. It's so cold and um, the soil is so black and it's great for wheat, terrible for wine grapes. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, it, it, it reached a point where the, the owners of that winery wanted to make me a partner. Wow. And um, I thought really hard, and I told myself, if I'm going to make wine, I'm going to make the best wine possible. And so I started doing interviews up in Napa, and I got hooked up with Turley. They loved my resume, and um, they flew me out for the job, and... Um, yeah, I've been here ever since. I've worked for Turley almost 20 years now. So was Napa Wine Lab in Kansas? No, no. Or was that it was, in it Napa? Was Napa. <laughs> it was at the end, it was well, the end of his phone know. line. Yeah. Because sometimes yeah. that happens where there are businesses named no, no, sure. for no, regions no. and other places. No, yes. so. no, no. I was, it, like, curious. No, no. It was straight up like, okay, we got this issue. We're dealing with this, and they're like, "Oh my God, <laughs> that's so funny." <laughs> so then, what was your what was your connection then to Hurley that got you connected in? So with, with Hurley, that? so um, the basic of what I did in Kansas, I had to do everything, and 
prior to that, I lived in Mexico, mm-hmm. and so I was fluent in Spanish. And um, when I sent them my resume, it, it was they were totally enthralled with that. Well, that you know, being a Spanish speaker is of a, a great advantage and sought after. Yeah, in especially these parts. on the viticultural side. Right, because you got to be able to talk with your crew. <laughs> yeah, your exactly. team. Exactly, your team. Totally, totally. And the most important thing about making wine is it begins in the vineyard. And it begins with all the people that do all the things in the vineyard to make the best possible fruit right. that you can get. So, mm-hmm. And I believe Turley now makes a good... 47 different wines, 50 locations. You focus in, in Paso, Paso right. um, primarily. So how how much acreage are you now overseeing? So I'm managing about 80 acres mm-hmm. down in Paso. We've got the um, Pacinti Vineyard, the Uberoth Vineyard, the Martinelli Vineyard, the Airstrip Vineyard, and then we source from the Ducey Vineyard, which we don't do the farming, but mm-hmm. uh, we source that fruit. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And are all those vineyards in Paso Robles in that region? Exactly. In that exactly. Okay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They're and you've got wine and you've got winemakers locally in Paso as well. So we do. Everything, so everything is made there as well. Exactly. Locally. Okay. So because there's a you know a couple different locations you've got Turley up here in Saint Helena, mm-hmm. um, as well as your location. Down right. There. Yeah. So you have Tegan Tegan uh, Paso Aqua, who's mm-hmm. the uh, director of winemaking. And then we've got my colleague Carl Wicca down in Templeton, and then you have uh, Nick and Amador, and mm-hmm. yeah, very interesting. So I'm curious, Brennan, fr- and I don't know if this came up this morning in the seminar. The big thing that everybody's talking about these days is, you know, the winemaking and wine growing is a supply and demand basis, and for the first time in a long time, we're starting to see a shift on the little teeter-totter here in that we have more supply available than we have demand. And then you couple that with climate change and how everything's a lot warmer. We've we've been talking about how it's darn near 70 degrees here in San Francisco in January, something completely unheard of. Yeah, Mm -hmm. crazy. Um, So your experience so long, are are you really seeing this in the vineyard? Are you really seeing differences over the 20 years that you've been uh, farming in Paso that going, wow, we're really starting to see some patterns here with climate change in N- the vineyards. No, no. In, in the past 20 years that I've been with Turley, no. Interesting. I, I haven't seen like, okay. um, no, I have not seen that. And I, and I take notes every single day. And it's very, when you're a farmer, um, everything is very cyclical and you always reference the previous like five years or 10 years and rainfall mm-hmm. and um, things of that nature. And so I haven't seen, I can't say, hey, guess what? Our sugar level, levels are a lot higher than they were 20 years ago. I can't mm-hmm. say that. Um, the one thing though, and I think we could see that maybe 30 years, 40 years, 50 years down the road, mm-hmm. I could see that maybe being an impact. And then what I see is probably people moving closer to the coast, yeah. closer mm-hmm. to where the, the climate's a little bit moderate. More cool. It's Interesting. a little cooler. Interesting. Or planting mm-hmm. different varietals, right. too, that are a little bit more um, 
better placed for right. warmer climate. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's mm-hmm. all very interesting to hear because we're dealing with really kind of micro levels in, in shifts um, to right. find out what's happening with temperature. You know, they keep talking about we're trying to keep us below a one and a half degree centigrade increase by 2015. And it sounds like, wow, that's such a teeny tiny amount. Um, I'm not a I'm not a weather person and don't claim to be, but I, I'm sure it's much bigger than that on a global scale. That's probably a, a lot more th- things happening and changing that have happened in the last 20 years. But very interesting. So we're here at Zinfandel Experience. You do a lot of Zinfandel growing. It's kind of unique in many ways. It it ripens in a very uneven pattern. Um, I'd be really personally intimidated by going, looking at that and going, I have no idea if this is ready um, for harvest or not. Um, What do you want to have our listeners know about Zinfandel and Turley's expression of Zinfandel? I think the one of the very beautiful things about Zinfandel is its diversity in that where you have a Zinfandel cluster that has raisins Mm -hmm. and it has like pink berries on it and it is a beautiful thing and it's also a beastly thing (laughs) because a lot of things that we do in the vineyard is to try to make it more consistent Mm -hmm. as far as like not have too much raisins not have too much pink fruit Mm -hmm. um you you really when you make the wine you make it in the vineyard and so you have to do lots of different things to try to make that more consistent and then um the offshoot of that though too is that and i've heard stories and i've talked to other winemakers and other um wineries and you can like really sort it like Mm -hmm. you can like have the optical um sorting table and like sort out all the raisins sort out all the pink fruit get this one consistent thing Mm -hmm. and make the wine out of it and then in the end you get this very one-dimensional wine (laughs) (laughs) why am i not surprised to hear that (laughs) and 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 this is not my quote but basically what happens is you sort the sexiness out of symphondel i love that quote i think that should be your quote (laughs) Keep the, a, keep the sexy in Zinfandel. Right, there you go. I, you know, I, was, I was thinking about uh, when I was doing my research about the many different ways that it's made. So, so w- my follow-up question to that was with 80 acres, and that's not all, that's not all Zinfandel. You, mm-hmm. you, that's, that's just one of the grapes that you oversee. Are you finding that for your Zinfandel harvest, you're, you're harvesting blocks on many, many different days over... A couple of weeks or a, or a more months. than a month more, more yeah. months yeah. And, the, and the way that we're set up is we have lots of small tanks mm-hmm. lots of five ton fermenters lots of ten ton fermenters and basically so if we take for example the Pacenti vineyard which is like 40 acres of contiguous Zinfandel we do 20 different picks mm-hmm. we keep all those picks separate we ferment them separate um, over the year, we start to taste them. We say, oh, this fits in the blend. This doesn't fit in the blend. But what it allows us to do is really hone in on, okay, the north-facing blocks give us this characteristic. 
south facing blocks give us this characteristic east west all that mm -hmm. and um it's it's basically a master class for the Pacenti vineyard in studying mm -hmm. Zinfandel mm -hmm. and how it behaves on the different mm -hmm. aspects, the different elevations, high elevation, low elevation. So is there a, a fairly predictable pattern of say, your north facing blocks, are they getting harvested last and your south in first or they, are they not always following what you would predict no it, it, it behaves like that and for me because it started in 2001 so I have almost 20 years and every year it's like learning more and finding the correlations mm -hmm. and the interesting thing when it's dry farmed north facing blocks retain more moisture mm -hmm. tend to ripen sooner um, in a drought year definitely they ripen sooner in a very wet year, a lot of times the south-facing blocks ripen sooner. Hmm. Interesting. And you had a lot of drought years in that 20 years, too. <laughs> we you? did, yeah. Yeah, there, yeah, there was a five-year period Water for sure. Was a big deal in Pasarillas, I remember that. So totally. Was, yeah. And totally. I, don't, I don't know if you experienced the same patterns that we did here, but it seemed like um, somewhere between 2012 and 2015, we had a series of years in which they were pretty hot. And so all of a sudden, everything was getting riper two weeks earlier, three weeks earlier. And this kept marching for several years that were our drought years to it, everything being ready a lot earlier. And now we're starting to march back again to what people might consider to be the more regular harvest weeks and months. Yeah. <laughs> Exactly, and and we're all still pretty young mm -hmm. because I mean, what what's my time rep reign is twenty years. Mm -hmm. And how old are, how old are the vines where you're farming? So Pacinti Vineyard was planting in 1924. Oh wow! Ubroth Vineyard was planting in in uh, 1885. Oh, which to wow. put that to put that in perspective, that's when the Statue of Liberty was shipped <laughs> over here. That's like pre-electricity. That's, that's amazing. A, a great that's perspective. That's pre-tractors. That's pre... Um, those were like the Wild West days. Hardy, hardy vineyards, right? Yeah, something else. So we, for our listeners, will you tell them a little bit about Pastorellas? Not everyone's been there. And, you know, where is it? It's Central Coast, right? But it's not on the coast. So our... It's it, great wine you know, country. It, it's beautiful. Yeah, so it's Central Coast. Um, you have the west side which is closer to the coast, which the Pacinti Vineyard's about eight miles as the crow flies from the coast. So you mm -hmm. have gigantic coastal influences. Mm -hmm. And then you have the east side, which is a little bit flatter, um, a little bit warmer, a little bit less rainfall. Mm -hmm. um, crazy awesome thing about Paso Robles is there's lots of uh, calcareous limestone. And what that does, it's very different than like Napa with volcanic soil. Mm -hmm. And what that does is the pH of the soil is seven and a half to eight, which is interesting because if you look at the vineyards, they look white from a distance. <laughs> and right. you find like well bones. And it was all underneath the ocean. And Pleistocene um, or earlier periods. Yeah, and or things Miocene. Like that. Yeah. So yeah, you find like Miocene. just shells and things out there. Yeah, you find shells, yeah. And all and that colors your vineyards. Yeah. And uh, the thing that really makes Paso awesome is 
that high pH soil retains lots of acidity in the wines. Nice. And that kind of like makes Paso a little bit different than um, lots of other areas in California. So the Zins really that cool. come from Turley in St. Helena are going to be vastly different. They are. There you go. They, they, they are. And the way that we make wine at Turley is we do non-fined, non-filtered, native yeast fermentation. Mm-hmm. We farm the v- vineyards organically. We um, do the same practices. And the, the goal for us is to have... 40 different Zinfandels all tasting very different because of the location that they come from. How cool for right. consumers. So this is, Me. so for, for those who may not realize it, truly specializes in single vineyard designates um, and, and, many di- and many, many different locations. So although Trilly's been around for 30, 40 years? Yeah, 94. Uh, okay. 94 it was. So it... You know, they've been expanding all this time. How many different wines from how many different vineyards that they they grow from and source from um, and all focusing in on Zins and Petit Sarah, right? Yep. There's yeah. a little bit of Petit Sarah. Little, right. So those are their main focuses. And the, the peppery notes um, can be all different from different vineyards in yeah. years. Oh, totally, totally. And it's... They're all made the same, but they all taste extremely different. And there was one year where we sourced a vineyard down in Mexico, and it was owned by L.A. Chetto, which is kind of like the gallo of Mexico. <laughs> okay. And Ow. they had this vineyard, their heritage vineyard, their first vineyard that they planted in 1906. And we went down there. I found the vineyard and um, set up a deal with the owners. <laughs> and it was <laughs> extremely old school. Went down there in Mexico, um, had a six-hour lunch, <laughs> hashed out the deal where we were going to source some fruit from them. The vineyard was called Rancho Escondido. It was back in 2004, and uh, they agreed to break off about four tons of fruit, and we brought it up and made the wine out of it, and it was really cool. That takes nice. you full circle back to when you fell in love with wine, right? Or it with the totally vineyard, right? Totally, <laughs> totally. Exactly. And the, the, the craziest thing, because you have to understand, the owner of this winery, L.A. Chetto, this guy walked into the, to the luncheon with like six bodyguards. Oh, my gosh. Holy cow. <laughs> <laughs> what were his other business dealings? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but very, wow. very old school. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Um, we're almost out of time, and I want to ask you, Brennan, where do you, where do you see yourself in another 10 years? Um, so, so the deal for me is I came from Kansas, and when I came out for Turley, and I saw Pacinti Vineyard, and I saw that it was dry-farmed, and it was old vines, and it was planted in the 20s, and I said, it was a revelation. It was a revelation for me. And I said, this is one of the truthful ways of farming. And so I was able to um, gather up a little bit of money on my part, buy some land, plant my own tri farm vineyard, but do something very different and plant it very tight, very dense. And you got like four and a half foot rows? 
like three by seven. Okay. And um, a lot of people said, you can't do that. And I planted, and it just so happened that I had the resources to do it, and I planted in the heart of the drought. Oh, no! But it it was a leap of faith, and I did it. And I had, um, for me, commercially professional deal of planting is you plant it, and you have to have at least 92% take. And the vine survived. And, Fantastic. Um, yeah, and my first vintage was 2016, and um, that's where I see myself is really okay. pushing the limits of what you can do, dry farmed. And Very cool. um, what's that vineyard called? Is there um, a vineyard designate from that? So is it the Stover Vineyard? <laughs> 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 the crazy thing is, it's called the Base Vineyard, and okay. because across the street is this still producing commercial quarry where they've carved 600 feet down on the side of a mountainside. Oh, wow. And I take people out to my vineyard and I say, there's my soil profile, 600 <laughs> feet. Wow. And they, m- and they make it into base. Ooh. And um, my label is called Quench and Temper, and it's a reference to when I was growing up, I um, had to work at a steel factory and to put myself through college. And Quench and Temper means... Um, it's a process where you heat up metal and then you cool it down and it makes that metal stronger. And so it was at that steel factory that uh, it was the worst job ever. Really? Everything was black, wow. everything was gray. The only thing of color was these bright orange parts coming out of the bellies of the furnaces. And um, it was at that job where I had the epiphany and I said, you know what, you gotta figure out something you really enjoy doing because this is straight up hell. Sounds like hell. <laughs> Sounds yeah, like it, it looked was. like hell. <laughs> but we're looking at the bottle here, and it is really a cool It's cool really package. cool, and, and you've, you've got some nice embossing going there. Quenchandtemper.com cool. for that. Yeah. Turleywinecellars.com for the Turley wines. Yeah. Um, so th- did you design this? Is this your... I did. You know, this is cool. the guy breaking out of the steel factory. I got it. And planting his vineyard. I think that's there very cool. Yeah, that's really awesome. That's uh, I think that's a really strong label and very exciting. Wow. Yeah. And very it's, cool. You know, the crazy thing is it's taken me 24 years to get to this stage. So. Well, well, good for you. Congratulations. Yeah, it's great. It's fantastic. Thank you for sharing that with Nothing us. like that's following terrific. your, not just your dream, but like your intuition. And, <laughs> and going for it. You got to go for it, which you've done. Is it what else are you gonna do? I know right? exactly. What else are you gonna do? So I, I'm gonna to I, I'm gonna ask a question that maybe is a slightly rhetorical, but but would your advice be to young people that you gotta just kind of keep going towards your dream, however far off and and distance it may seem? And what do you what do you want to say down to maybe to your younger self? You know, to uh, yeah, to not give up and to believe and okay. to leap, leap, and the net will appear and uh yeah for me the the last thing that i wanted to do was um just produce another wine like i wanted to break the rules i wanted to do something different and um i wanted to base everything on quality and uh if i fell i fell but uh and i think it's i think it's very cool that you also picked out some uh some varieties that are a little lesser known 
Um, but I'm sure you already knew that they were going to go there. I don't, I don't even know the Graciano very well. Um, that's on your your label there. Um, but uh, very cool. What? Yeah, I, th- I thought when when she was when Marshall was looking at the label before you um, sat down with us, she said I said I thought she said Graciana because there's a there's a winery called Graciana and I thought what so Did they, nope. is this a, like a con a, you know a, a, you know like a, a partnership but no that I hadn't not familiar with that grape so that's yeah, really kind of no, neat and it's um it's one of those things where um uh it, it's a lot of people have planted it in Paso and it behaves really well with the climate mm-hmm. and it retains lots of really good acidity and um I think you'll see a lot more of it in the future too I, I think you're right, especially since we are hearing noise about uh, um, climate change and how we're going to have to adjust and plant to more warmer, friendly varieties out there. So we'll see what happens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So Brennan Stover, vineyard manager yeah. at Turley Wine Cellars in Paso Robles, California. Thank you, Brennan. Thank you so Thank much you for guys. being with us. We yeah. really appreciate it. Pleasure to be with you guys. Yeah, Great. Thank you. Thanks a lot.